if just bang it. If um, if England had gone to war when or began to hold Hitler accountable for what he was doing, the violation of the treaties, what? 5,000 men, 10,000 men? We lost what, eight mil, what were the eight million people in the second, what were the, somewhere around eight 60 million. million. How many? 60 million civilians and more dead. Total. 60 million? million? Yeah, oh, 20 million dead. Russians. More? In World War II, all of World War II? Yeah. We're talking about 100 million. Well, okay. Anyway, you see my point. China, yeah. China. Yeah. Okay. Russia, okay. Germany and of course the United States. Yeah. Japan. But all of the big three uh, uh, countries lost millions. Well, Stalin alone killed twenty-three of his own people. Yeah. Well. Anyway, you see the point here because they just the West had just come out of a war. They didn't want to go back to war because they, they'd suffered the losses of people they cared about and a, a great holocaust occurred. Um, so the whole attitude of the West was appeasement. And Churchill was pushing that and, and all the underlings with, working with him did the same. Churchill was a voice in the wilderness, alone, absolutely alone. When the movie starts, he's brought in to replace Chamberlain. And the people who still supported appeasement wanted to do everything they could to get him out. So the beauty of the movie, as I saw it, was that we saw all that was going on to get him out of office again and to return to the policies of appeasement, even though Hitler was already conquering Western Europe. So the liberal, the modern liberal mind who wanted to make everything okay to appease believing that if they made these treaties with Hitler, we would be okay. He was the only one who stood out. And at one point in the movie, as it shows it, he breaks. And I don't, I don't want to tell you what happens, but it looks like he's going to capitulate because the pressure's just, there's too many reasons around him. And they're all, the people who speak these reasons do it with convictions. These are not manipulators. They're not Machiavellian figures. I mean, there's a lot of manipulating going on. There are people who actually believe that's the best thing. There's this one line, I can't keep forgetting it, when Churchill says, how did he put it? You don't see, again, he, he was a great reader of history. What he was saying is, you don't get it, you don't get it, you don't get it, um, because it's there to be seen. Anyway, a wonderful movie. I just, if you're looking for a good movie, it's a great movie. The other movie um, Suzanne and I saw last week is called um, The Mountain Between Us. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. It's about two people who are a stranger, one black, one white, and trying to get to places because of emergencies. He's a neurosurgeon and he has to, he has to make an appointment for a surgery. She's supposed to get home for a marriage. She's gonna be married. Snows come in, the planes, airports close down, they can't get out. She has an idea to take one of these little small crafts so they go to a local airport and hire this guy. Uh, it crashes and they're stranded deep, I think, in the Denver mountains where it's snowing and blizzards and they have to survive. I won't tell you the movie. It's, a, it's about marriage. <laughs> I, I really, I mean, it, it, when you watch, I'll, I'll say, uh, 
I'm going to say, no. <laughs> or hate giving movies away. My wife is shaking her head. As she usually does. <laughs> I know. Bev, Bev, what are you saying about me? Do, do I listen or not? Apparently not. I'm just saying. There's another movie, The Post. The Post? That's worthwhile yeah. seeing. Okay. That's very relevant today. And we're trying to shut down the news. What happens between this man and a woman? Um, how do I? They, I can't say. It's an amazing story, and it, I, I believe it, it, it does better than, I mean, lots of movies about couples, you know. They, they come to a point that's really rare for a man and a woman to come to, and I won't, I won't tell you, and I won't tell you the outcome, but it's a special, special movie. It's really worth seeing. I really think one. it's about marriage. Huh? There's another one that just came out yesterday called 12 Men. Hmm. And don't look at it from a, from a war standpoint. Look at it from a strategy standpoint. The captain who is in that movie, I won't tell you what, what he did, but it is phenomenal what he did in three weeks. What the Pentagon couldn't do in <laughs> years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It, actually, those things shouldn't surprise us anymore. I think we know what God It's becoming such a commonplace. Okay, here, let's, let's, um, okay, um, one brief comment about the uh, readings today. Mike, Mike came up after when we first came in here and said it's amazing how the class lines up with the homilies and, you know, the readings. I, I've been, I've been feeling that way constantly since the beginning. I just... I find myself constantly responding, particularly with Father Flynn and some of his homilies. Um, just one brief comment on the reading today, and then to just pass on what Mike had to say, because I think it's so true. Um, one of the interesting things about the reading this morning is that, and what makes it clear that David will be a better king than Saul, is... Saul's doing something wrong, and it should be answered with justice. David had him in his grasp. He could have killed him. He didn't, and the reason he didn't, because he was God's anointed. When somebody's over us, I mean, I'm thinking now about children. Let's just, I mean, let's make this as real as we can. When a child has to grow up with a parent, and there's something going on with a parent that I mean, all of us fail as parents in some ways. Um, the natural encouragement in a large part of our country, it's a, I mean, it's Protestant in principle, it, it, the spirit of protest is inherent in us. We've been looking at it for a long time. Um, that it, for most of us, we feel justified in what we're doing when somebody's wrong even if it's a parent. What David does is forgive him and steps back, even if he's wrong, because he's God's anointed. 
And I, to that, to, that to me is an amazing moment because it shows in some sense he will be a great king. He knows how to serve and he knows how to be obedient. Could have killed him, he didn't. So it, it goes to this issue. You know, let, let, think about children growing up where you've got a parent who's doing something wrong. The struggle that you're in because you still have to love that parent. You still have to be obedient. Um, but so much in our culture encourages somebody when they think something wrong to feel justified in defying David doesn't do that. I don't think that's a small thing. It's a, to me, it's an amazing thing. And it's already an early indication, I think, of he will fail as a king. I mean, you know what he does. He kills Uriah and, and has an affair with um, Bathsheba or what. But he's a great king. And I think God always loves him. Even, and and he, he, he repents. He repents. So anyway, just a note on that. Mike's comment today, which is really interesting, was he said, you know, it's interesting because we've been reading about this. If you take up the biblical verse in the book of Samuel, this is really amazing. You're watching a people come together to, to unite around God's will. To begin to pull together when they were divided and tearing each other apart and turning away from God. It's exactly what's going on in the trilogy on a, on a less visible political level it, it, it's really rooted in a community so we're we're at a community level at our level engaging it not looking at a president or a leader or a Saul or a king we're watching people at a, as a at a basic human level learn to change their lives and begin to take responsibility for evil and it pulls them together so it's it, it's it really is amazing here's the shocker if you all got my note <laughs> You all got, next week, we're going to deal with that, that third section of chapters from 12, 13, 14 to 18, somewhere in there. And I believe it's there that the crisis takes place. And I, don't want, I do not want to give this out. Um, but let me, let me, I'm going to tease this out. I think you're going to see where this is going. There's no way I can... Hide it. Um, you remember in in Melville's Moby Dick, and what a great book that was, and what a wonderful critique it was of the American culture, and in in in, in exposing its spiritual religious hypocrisies, and going to the metaphysical roots of it. Ishmael's the one who does that largely through Ahab, because Ahab's the one who's questioning them. We've gone through this, so there's no need to do it here, but you know how deep that book is. It's not just a book about surface realities. He's, he's plumbing metaphysical realities. And I've said this before, the great poets always do that at a time of crisis. The Renaissance was that, with Milton and Shakespeare and the whole host of poets who, because when something happens to shake up a culture, you no longer have a reason for living for what you did live for before because they're all questioned, they're gone. At that point, you have to look at metaphysical causes, what's beneath them. And the really great poets do that. Shakespeare, Dante, Milton, Melville, Faulkner. Faulkner in the South. Faulkner in the South. You remember that in that book, Melville is laying bare the hypocrisies of a Protestant culture. We talked about that. There isn't anybody in that 
opening in, in Melville's treatment of the land that isn't failing to live up to their Christian call, even though they think of themselves as Christian. Um, and remember, there's a sort of minor crisis early on when, when um, um, Queequeg is um, whittling at Yojo, the, the little idol, and Ishmael has that crisis because he says, my, pres my Presbyterian brothers would see me as being blasphemous doing this, but he does it. Um, <coughs> it's a big risk for him. Feels like he's going against his religious convictions. Mrs. Hussey, um, Bildad, Peleg, Father Mapple, all of them in some ways are failing in their, in, in their call as Christians. We've, we've talked about this, so I don't want to go back. But we're watching Melville expose the faults of a respectable culture, a New England culture. I'm assuming all of you by this point know how important respectability is for the South. And my question, Nick, I mean, where we're going next week is something's going to happen with that. I think that's, I'm going to leave it there. Something major is going to happen. But to prepare for that, I want to ask, I want to ask this question. What, right now, I want to just take a minute. I'm going to get away from our readings just for a second. that bears on it, but it's, it's pulling out a theme, and, and I'd like to ask that we take a look at it for a second in preparation for next week. What is respectability in your minds? And more to the point, what does it say about the relationship between a woman and a man? I don't know how to ask it any better than that to get to it, to leave it open. What is respectability? What does it reveal about the relationships between men and women? Anybody want to try to tackle that? I know that's awfully broad. Remember, Melville blew respectability away. I hope everybody's clear. Remember, Ishmael is a Jonah figure. He's coming back to say something to that culture that they left. And one of the questions we have to ask is, will that culture hear? <coughs> will that culture hear what he has to say? What does he have to bring back? I mean, we've gone through this, so. Um, but there's a culture failing. It's, it's a little different from the Troy we began with in the Iliad. This culture is failing, it's Christian calling. There's a crisis. Remember I opened the, the talk on Melville and saying, this is mid-century, 19th century, two different, radically different ways of, viewing, of reading the world are in conflict with each other, a biblical, a scientific. Ishmael is constantly doing everything he can to reconcile them. If you go back through his readings, you know he's constantly looking at things in scientific terms and in religious. He's, he's, opening, he, he's teaching us a new way of looking at the world that puts both of those things into perspective. He's got to go back. He writes the book. Who's reading it that way? Do people read it as, as Jonah coming back to Nineveh to tell the Ninevites something they need, must hear? You know, do, do they listen? Do we? Do, do we read the book that way? My question now, look, Faulkner loved that book, Moby Dick. He said, he said in personal notes, he wished he'd written it. He loved that book. Um, and he's a gifted poet like Melville. So in some ways, he's looking at this very respectable community, particularly in the town. And we're approaching a crisis. 
And at the center of it is this relationship between a man and a woman. Yeah? Can't miss it. Um, highly, it's sexually charged. Everything that's going on has to do with Eula and, and Despain and Eula and Phlegm. And in some ways, almost more importantly, Gavin and Eulen, and then Gavin and Linda. So, step back from the book for a second. Let's see if we can, I don't know if, where we're going to go with this, but what do you all think respectability is, and um, what does it help us see about the relationship between men and women? Don, did you have a thought? Yeah, I think respectability is relative to the culture of basically what society considers as normal or proper behavior doesn't necessarily correspond to uh, religious or morality yeah because morals have changed over time what we consider acceptable today was not acceptable 50 years ago right you know we have uh, I'm writing my little essay and uh, in our culture, you know, we've gone from uh, a culture where marriage was normal. Now it's cohabitation and mm -hmm. children born out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. It's gone from 5% to 40% of children today are born out of wedlock. Uh, and this is perfectly acceptable. Yeah. In the 50s and 60s, you know, if a woman had a child uh, and wasn't married, you know, that, that was not, uh, you know, um, out in the open today. Yeah, you know, it's out in the open. Right, right. Yeah, good. And just to underscore what you said in your first comment, it's relative to every culture. But but how did you put it that it's a what we believe is a normal way? How'd you put it that a, a normal what way of society behaving? Accepts as normal and proper. Yeah. It, it's like a guide. It, it 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 it's a guide to what we believe is in the best interest of living out our lives. And that changes from culture to culture. Take up my second question, though. Um, what does, did you have something? Sue? I had something with what you just said. It's what people, what a culture believes is best for living out your life. But I don't believe that. It's best for what society sees as living out its total life. Because respectability yes. doesn't mean yeah. it's going to be good for the person. It means it's a facade that keeps the or a convention, or, a convention I want to be, or yeah. whatever you want, right. the rules that keep right. society. Right. And that's, I think, for me, the, the rub, because that... Don't go here yet. No. Okay. No. I mean, don't go to the town yet, but... <laughs> no, no, I'm okay. going to. Okay. But, but the idea that people don't really live that way. I would go so far as to say, I mean, Gavin tries, but he, nobody really lives that way. They each have their own built-in system, and then you've got so many different built-in systems that you have this respectability guideline for the culture yeah. that makes all of those live together. But but that isn't, at the personal level, that isn't what people yeah. do before. But I would, I would it's a, it, That's why I say a facade, yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, different. But I, but I, I would to try to bring the two together so that we have some common ground here, even allowing that we can all differ, that and I, I think your correction is a good one, but I just want to qualify it in this way that yes, it's true that society's way of thinking what, what's good. But in that sense, it's, it, the, the assumption is that, that be, they have those beliefs because they believe 
the life of individual people will be improved because that's the way, that's in accord with our nature. And that's why they believe it because, um, there, I mean, look at what's going on in North Korea. You cannot, you just cannot by any means say that that's a normal culture, but in their own eyes, they, they somehow believe that. But did somebody? But that's yeah. where the flaw is. <clears throat> I mean, I think respectability is the poor substitute for self-respect. Mm -hmm. You know, respectability is like, like you said, it's it's relative. I mean, that's part of what's wrong with our culture here today, is what some people believe is respectable, is very different than what other people believe is respectable in our country mm -hmm. right now, and that's I think causing a great part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yep. look at the short stories that we just finished reading not too long ago. A lot of people in those short stories thought they were respectable, but in reality, they were quite the opposite. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you think about what Fred's saying right now, because every one of those stories um, sharpened the focus of that, just in, exactly in those terms. There were, the ironies were deep just for that reason. Mike, did you have something? Yeah. Uh, bringing, all, bringing all of this together, there's a cause and effect, and I think the cause of the Civil War brought the social change into both the North and South, as well as into the world. Because, if, if just looking at the South, before the Civil War, men respected women, women did not work. Women did not do anything but have babies. After the war, what happened? All the men were gone. <laughs> And so the women had to go out and work. And a true event, uh, look at this, is gone with the wind. The women had to go out and work now, but they were, the men would not take them in, would not, would not allow them to work because of, but they went north and they got the jobs that they needed. So <clears throat> I think the big cause and effect is the Civil War and the north moving down to the south to change this. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think Faulkner brings this out very well. Yeah, go back to my, because I don't want I want to stop here. I don't want to, because this is a very abstract and I want to get it into the story so our focus is there. What does respectability reveal to us about the relationships between men and women? I mean, everybody's been pretty, um, Don, um, Sue, respectability is a, pro, is, is a way of living um, it expresses a society's view of itself and the best way to live out lives. That I think the assumption always is in accord with our nature. This is, but this is what's normal or proper, or they wouldn't do it. Certainly not in the West, because one of the presumptions of the West is that freedom is really important for us, and we believe there's a human nature, and we try to adjust the way we structure society in accord with that so that people will live fruitful lives. Very often, the way they do that is, at, as a matter of fact, out of tune with human nature, certainly from a Catholic perspective. I mean, homosexual marriages, abortion, um, euthanasia, those are all practices that have been accepted largely in the West because they believe that we, we would be more in tune with our human nature if we did. One of the reasons we went to war with uh, in our own civil wars be because we believe slavery was out of tune with our nature, that it was wrong. It was in violation of one of our important principles. That is, each person should be free to determine his own life. 
being a slave is not wrong. By the way, the basis for our culture until recently, from the very beginning, was Christian. Or we wouldn't have gone to that war. We would not have. Um, Christian ideals have motivated what we've done pretty all along, but going back to Melville. 19th century, we're beginning to watch a decline that you know, has carried over. Faulkner's dealing with it again in his book. So, come on, back to this question. What does respectability reveal to us about the relationship between men and women? Anything, any thoughts? Huh? It's variable. Yeah, it is variable, but is there because still... Because a successful marriage has to ultimately come to a compromise <coughs> with that variability. That's right. I think because every, every wife or husband's expectation of their partner is different. And that relationship ultimately has to find a compromise between the relativity of the respectability Relatively, you mean of the culture? I'm sorry, relative. Not so much the, to me. What's the to me, when you get to the man and the woman, it becomes a microcosm of the culture. That the respectability that a, a man or a woman has or, or expects from the other may or may not be the same as or reflect what the culture is. Mm -hmm. But it's it's an individual. It's a it's a microcosm of the culture. It's their own culture. And they ultimately have to find a compromise between their their own desires or expectations and what the what the partner expects or considers to be respectable. Mm -hmm. So it's going to vary from marriage to marriage, and I think a marriage is either successful or not successful if they're able to find a compromise. Yeah, I think the, the common view traditional marriage was the respectable thing. Having affairs or having children out of wedlock, that was not respectable. Right. But we've evolved to the point where that's become respectable, so to speak. You call that evolution? <laughs> <laughs> that scares me. Evolution is just change. Everything's yeah. going to change. Okay, here, just let me, <laughs> let me throw this out and then stop. I want you to just give this some thought, because we're going to come back to this next week. It's going to be in the center of the book. Um, John Crow Ransom once, in an essay, I think he called it, I can't remember if it was Forms of Literature, I don't um, um, This is going to get a little bit closer to the, the closer, actually I'm glad this is here because this is actually helpful. You remember that last week I introduced this notion of Christian um, chivalry and courtly, courtly romance. Both of them deeply Christian, both of them um, adapting them, assimilating a, a pagan natural view of the relation between men and women um, into a Christian view. So if you remember, if you go back to the ancient world, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, particularly, let's say the Odyssey, because the Odyssey is principally about getting home to a wife. Um, that according to the natural, according to our nature, according to the pagan view of before Christianity comes in, there are four natural virtues. You can identify them. Justice, fortitude, temperance, prudence. Those are natural virtues. We are all, we are all encouraged to 
practice them because they make us better human beings. That's, a, that's in accord to our nature because we have an intellect and a will. And every one of those is set in the context of what happens when you go to extremes. Drink too much, eat too much, have sex too much, um, don't give another its due, are not wise in what you're you know, thinking, prudent, right? fortitude, holding when things get hard. So those are not abstractions. They relate to our human nature and what happens when we get out of control, basically that. And what they imply is a norm, that there is a normalcy a human can attain by practicing those virtues. The more prudent you become, the more temperate you become, um, the more you endure. What am I missing? Courage. Courage. Justice. No, it's, for, it's justice. fortitude, justice, prudence, temperance. The, um, the, the more that we practice any one of those, the, the, the better we come. I mean, you, you've been, this has been implied in everything I've ever since from the beginning. How can we give what's due to another person if we don't make ourselves better? We, we'll never be able. We'll all shortcome if we're too selfish or we won't give another his due. The social contract is the theory that introduces something along the lines of a compromise, as if compromising would, would quiet these other problems, but it doesn't answer our nature. What's right? What's wrong? So we inherited this, and you see what happens in the Odyssey. You remember that Odysseus has to learn to deal with these feminine archetypes before he can get home, or he won't. And I suggested in our reading that you remember when he and Penelope go to bed, Athena stops time. That's, in my mind, that's, that's a moment in which we're to understand they have fulfilled their relationship together. She has learned to deny herself, to, 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 to hope, to have fortitude, to wait things she's waited 20 years. Odysseus has had to learn to go through all these things to get past the honor code that treated women as objects. So man and woman at that point don't look at the other as an object. She doesn't look at him that way. He doesn't look at her that way. They are both completely human, and in that moment their love is realized. But, but we saw the cost of it. The cost of it was 20 years and all these things to go through. Christ comes into the world and he brings something divine and what he adds are what we call supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Those are gifts from God and I, I put this out, I, I think, I mean, in some sense what they do is build on the natural virtues, faith in nature. Grace perfects nature. Grace is supposed to take those things that we do well and perfect them. Um, Christ introduces a supernatural element that makes this clear, and it, it, it lead, it, I mean, it, it obviously had to be a scandal to the pagan mind. Faith is only real when you have no reason for having faith. Love is only real when you have no reason for love anymore. Where do we get that? From Christ. He came here because we deserved it. We're supposed to love exactly when it gets hard to love, not as a compromise. There's no compromise there. It asks everything of us. Hope isn't hope until we have no reason for hoping. That's what hope means. So the Christian virtues are supernatural. They go beyond anything a man can do on his own. So the whole relationship between man and God shifts. At that point, we see we can't do anything without, I mean, anything ultimately good that will take us to his kingdom without him. So 
a, a Christ, a, our Christian civilization rested on reconciling these two, the natural order with the supernatural. And out of that came the warrior, the pagan warrior, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, the Christian knight. And in that Christian middle-aged ethos, we know that in, in court societies, the most educated societies, that a knight was expected to learn manners, to learn to deny himself for his liege, for his king, the woman, the maiden, or the king, as Christ would. Serving became really important. This is interesting. What did, what did David do today? My liege, my king, pardon me. You know, and Saul, and, and what to me is, an, if you know anything about Saul, that's, that's an amazing moment for him to say, what, wasn't he weeping? When tears, he said, you could have taken my life today. He said, you'll be a good king. How many people have been kings? Who, he, he started out in envy because people loved David more than him. And he's saying, you'll be a good king. I mean, I, hearing that out of Saul's mouth is just amazing to me. So, he had a Huh? Think he had a vision? I don't know. I don't know. So out of when the Christian belief assimilates this pagan, everything we learned about ourselves naturally, it produced this, this tradition of courtly romance and the songs of deeds. I told you the two examples with um, Sir, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is the, is the one, best one really about courtly manners. And the song of Roland is about the the chivalric knight giving up his life for his life for Charlemagne. And the South was raised on it. I mean, the, America was a Christian culture. Even if it was two different as northern and southern, it was Christian. The South was far more mannered because it looked back more immediately to an aristocratic ideal. The, the plantations were like an extension of an aristocratic class, the well-mannered, the court, the education. But particularly the, the, the manners that were expected of a man in the way he related to a woman. And we saw, we talked about this, we saw the collapse of it in Sound of the Fury. Quentin does everything he can to hold on to it and fails and fails and fails. Gavin is, is an image of that tradition carried forward. Now let me stop. Is everybody okay? We, everybody knows where we are. Okay. Um, <sighs> Quentin takes his life. Where's it going? Gavin. Oh, here. Doesn't. I mean, Gavin lives this out. John Crow Ransom had this essay, I think called Forms of Literature. I'm not sure. that everybody knows the continuity, the continuation of civilization depends principally on the woman. <laughs> There's no life is going to come anywhere else. It's going to come out of a woman's womb or it won't come. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of basic <laughs> kindergarten, yeah. A, one, 101 genetic, whatever. Um, woman is the means of continuity in a civilization, the continuation. Um, she's the principle of life. It's from her that life is given. The, the difficulty is sexual, and we've seen from the very beginning 
that after the fall, one of the principal difficulties that man inherits is the disruption between the sexes. We, there's not a work we've read in which man and woman don't struggle in everything. We, their pride, the way they turn away from God, and, and the disordered loves that they live out in their lives. Ransom said, um, if man and woman are left to themselves, and, and I, every work we've read bears this out, the attractiveness of a woman is overpowering to a man. A woman can play to that power, she can abuse it, she can manipulate it, but it's there. A man is going to move towards her, all of his appetites, his desires are set in motion. If the two are left alone, there's, there's not a question where the power lies, it's in the woman. If man and woman are left to themselves, the man is going to go after a woman as a sexual object. It was there in the beginning in the Iliad. It's been in every book we've read. Um, the only way to protect that relationship is by forms of restraint, what we call courtship or manners. Or So here's where I'm going with this. It seems to me that when you look at this question of respectability, it will be relative to every culture. But in every culture, what's behind it is this relationship between a man and a woman. Because without it, a society can't go ahead. And the real question is, how do you protect a woman because she's the childbearing one? If, if the man does not learn restraint, manners, or how to be respectable. Don put it in some other way, but it was just another way of saying the same thing. And that's especially true in the South, because the South was an aristocratic, mannered world. Okay? Um, we saw from Melville that respectability is corrupted. There's something wrong with it. Um, and in the town, remember, we've moved from the hamlet, this agrarian world is closer to earth. We're in a mannered world. The domestic world is at the center. Maggie and Charles are at the center of it. So the town is dealing explicitly with the sexual relationship. Charles and Maggie, at the center of it is a marriage between this man who's impotent and evil and one of the most extraordinary beautiful creatures that's ever been born, Eula. And they're in an adulterous relationship. So at the center of the town is a marriage, Flem and Eula's, and Charles and Maggie's. We know that there's no passion in Charles and Maggie's. Remember that passage where he said, I'd never looked at her, and she said, the worst for me, you, you know, I've got a fish for a husband or whatever. Is. <laughs> and then a year later, they have chick. Um, but at the center of the story is an adulterous affair, and it sets off everything. It, it calls Gavin into play. He's ready to risk his life for her. Remember that passage where he says, it, it's his hope to defend the honor of a woman, whether it's there or not? Where did that come from? I said it last week. That's Christ. He loved her when she didn't deserve it. What did Christ do? So, at the center of the town, Faulkner is responsible is exploring respectability. And at the center of it is this relationship between a man and a woman and what's, what's natural or proper or right or not. Okay? So I just, I want to put, I can't put that out strongly enough. Moby Dick was a critique of a Christian culture based on respectability that was falling apart. Now we're looking at Faulkner a century later in our time, looking at a Christian culture that's lost its roots and that has at the center these disorders with sexual relationships. 
Now let me stop and turn to the book, if I can, because this is all abstract. What's one of the things that Gavin and Ratliff are learning from Montgomery Snopes when Montgomery Snopes gets caught? That bears on this question. No. Montgomery Snopes not worried when they start saying, we've got these girly postcards, they find, you know, they've been going on for months and months, maybe for two years in it. And they could not figure out, this is just not like Gavin or Ratliff at all. They've gone on for a couple of years trying to figure out what this guy's doing to draw these people. And finally, it's only because the sheriff wasn't around one night that they get to him. And when they confront him, he's taunting them. He's in their face. He's not afraid. Why? Hmm. Thinks Flem is going to protect him? Has Flem ever protected anybody in his family? No. As a matter no, but of fact, that doesn't give, I mean, that doesn't prevent them from thinking well, he might. But no, good, good. Does, does Montgomery, is, the reason Montgomery Ward is taunting them because he believes Flem's going to bail him out of this? No. He already knows, quite independent of that, that he doesn't have to, anything to be afraid of. Lewis, what? Well, I think, I think he's not afraid because he's got something on every one of them in town that's been using his services. I'm not sure. I have to, 168. I'm not. Oh, here, 172. 172. Take a look at this. I'm giving away next week. I'm not liking what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I'm giving away next week. Turn the blackboard back and pay attention to what you put on these. No. Turn, turn, turn to 172. This is just. It's really, it's really funny looking at, I mean, this is personal and sort of humbled by, I mean, I, I sort of stood on the edge of respectability all my life because, I mean, it's, there's things about it that to me are so wrong, just so bad. But you've got to stand there protective of it while you're, you know, finding your way through things. But anyway, 172. This is when Hampton got so mad at Montgomery Snopes because he was taunting him that he slapped him. Gavin's upset and says, stop, Ham. He says, stop it. 172, let him go ahead. This, Montgomery Ward is fearless. He's been caught running this, what is a prototype of pornography in this very, respect, very respectable town. Um, let him go ahead, Montgomery Ward. Suing bondsmen is easier than, than running a magic lantern. He can sue the sheriff now so because he just got hit. Say for two, where was I? Oh yeah, I mean this is, I hope you hear the cockiness in this man. I mean, he, he's so cavalier, so arrogant, because he knows they have nothing on him. Where was I? Oh yes, God, I almost can't read it. It's just like, to give a voice to this. 
Oh yes, even if they had been sent through mail, which they hadn't, that would be just a federal charge, and I don't see any federal dicks around here, and even if you tried to cook up a charge that I've been making money out of them, where are your witnesses? All you've got is Grover Wynn's book, and he don't dare testify, not because he will lose his job, because you probably do that anyway, but because the God-fearing Christian holy citizens of Jefferson won't let him because they can't have it known that this is what their police do when they're supposed to be at work. What's going on here? You can't miss it. What's going on? Nobody's going to do anything about it because they don't want to lose their respectability. Yes. What's protecting Montgomery Snopes right now? This veneer. Sorry? Veneer of respectability. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna. Call, I'm not gonna call it a veneer. You don't like I'm veneer of facade, but yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 wait. So do I, I do, but not here. I, I do too. It's okay. I like it. It's, I, I, because for me, it's a. It's an actual description of. I want. We're gonna get to. But I want. I want to just treat this as it is right now. Is it clear to everybody? He's protected by respectability. For the last four or five chapters. Um, Gavin and Ratliff have been trying to figure out what Snopes, Flem, was up to. And they're doing this in Chick's presence. I mean, the lines are wonderful because they, at one point they think it's prostitution and they, they, they try to talk about it without being explicit with Chick president or present. And, and Chick goes, what, what, who, what? You know, he's constantly <laughs> asking questions because he's not following what they're doing. And over and over and over again, Ratliff says, no, it's not that, it's not that. It's not money anymore which drove him. And then it leads him to say, Trinity, because these are, these are one, to me they're two of the most beautiful chapters in all of the literature. Turn to um, 161. They, they've been trying to track down Montgomery Snopes. Finally they do it, and the, then Montgomery is not afraid. Why? Because, how's it put? Because of respectability. Because Christians care more about respectability than they do something else. And that allows, that gives Montgomery Snope coverage. Okay? Now what is Faulkner beginning to show us about respectability? And just hold on to that. Turn to 161. You know, who Gavin is always thinking. I mean, we're going to look at this more closely next week because we don't have a lot of time, but Gavin is always thinking, always taking every possible perspective, and he keeps coming up with these answers, and Ratliff's going, no, 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 no. On 161, go on, I said, you can't stop now because Ratliff has just introduced this idea. At the bottom of 159, he says, all right, I said, I'll fight. That air $20 gold piece. What $20 gold piece? <laughs> Who's the person who's really, who really knows? It's Ratliff. By, by the way, I don't know if you may, it, it seems to me Ratliff is as close to Faulkner as any character is close to a book I've ever read. He puts things together, he sees how they connect, he loves people, he listens, he watches. Those are all qualities of Faulkner. It's almost like a Faulkner figure in the story. That $20 gold piece, you all remember what that was, that $20? He said that Flem pinned that inside his lapel, waiting for the day to, to bring it out. Now, there have been a couple of times before this when Ratliff said he's pulled the bill out. I mean, Gavin. And Ratliff says, no, no. And now Ratliff's reminding Gavin about that bill. 
Don't you remember what I said that day about how when a country boy makes his first Saturday night trip to Memphis, that air $20 bill he wears pinned inside his undershirt so he can at least get back home? That's a very homey, down, down south way of saying he's got to hold on to it to protect himself for the, the most important thing that he will want to get to where he wants to go. Goana said, you can't stop now. What's the one thing in Jefferson that Fleming got yet? The one thing he might want that maybe he, he's been working at ever since they'd taken Colonel Sardis out of that wrecked car and he voted Uncle Billy Varner's stock to make Manfred the Spain president of that bank. To be president of himself. I don't think he's got the answer. I mean, you've got to hear him saying this. He sees it. Why, to be president. To be president of himself, I said, no, I said, it can't be, it must not be, but he was just watching me. Nonsense, I said. Why nonsense, he said. Because to use what you call that $20 gold piece, he's got to use his wife too. Do you mean to tell me to believe for one moment that his wife will side with him against Manfred to Spain? But he still just looked at me. Don't you agree, I said. How can you hope for that? And he kept looking, and then he says, it's almost dinner time. Page 161. Because he missed it, he missed it completely. Ratliff sees something that Gavin doesn't. In the next chapter, um, 10, um, this, is, this is when they catch um, Montgomery. Um, <coughs> to go on over to... to um, to um, 175, they finally realize how helpless they are with Montgomery Stumps, that they're not going to be able to do with him. By the way, I hope, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to forget this. I've got to say it right now. Sorry. I'm not, since I turned away from that, I'm lost. Um, I've wanted to say this for the last couple of weeks. There's a passage in here, I'll read it next week, so I'll get it out at the very beginning. There's a passage in here that describes Flem Snopes as a principal, and it's male, not female, it's male. If you look at Flem Snopes, he's almost like, more like a flat character than a person. I would think you would all agree. It's like he's one-dimensional. He doesn't feel, he's not motivated by eros. He's not... I mean, he's, he's an image of modern, non-erotic man, a, a man who lives in his head, who has turned away from apparently all desires. Nobody can touch him. Remember when Mrs. Armstead comes, he's not affected by her suffering at all. He's like a flat character. He's inhuman. And in some ways, I think it makes it, um, it, makes it easier for us to understand why Eula would have an affair, an affair with Spain. Um, um, he, he's an evil person. Um, and in that sense, he's an image of a principle. And you all know, it, we've seen it. It's this getting ahead. And in that sense, for me, he's an image of what's at, I think for Faulkner, what's at the heart of a commercial entrepreneurial regime. This was going back to Dante and Shakespeare and the plays that we read. Except in Faulkner, it's treated as a principle, an actual abstraction. He just wants to get ahead. And in that sense, it seems to me he's an image, going back to what Mike said, you know, that this is about us. He's an image of something in every one of us. 
that tendency in each one of us to want to better our lives, even when it means it's at the expense of somebody else. So that in some ways we're encouraged to overlook other people, to take them for granted. I was thinking about it the other day because we really are coming to a crisis. Pope Francis said, get out of your pews. Put your rosaries away. Get out. Um, how much of what Faulkner's doing is in accord with what Faulkner's showing us? Or is Faulkner, let me put it differently, is Faulkner showing us concretely at our level, in the human level, the way humans interact, what Francis is asking us to do? Are we sufficient, I, this is the catechist in me now, so the catechist coming out. Are we sufficiently aware of, of what we're not doing in our lives? Or do we really see what if, if the, remember, my take from the beginning, there's something prophetic about literature. It's showing us things about ourselves we don't like to see. We, that was true for Melville. Is it true here? Is he showing us something about, um, this is a question. I just want to leave it hanging until next week. Is he showing us something about ourselves that's too easy for us to overlook? He's showing us a very human world here. Husband and wife, you know, going at it, brother-in-law and standing up. Adultery, marriage, I mean, a, a man trying to do good to another woman. I mean, there's every aspect of our domestic life that's put in front of us. Is there something there for us to see about ourselves that too often we don't seem to be willing to look at? If it is, what is it? And how much does it bear on this question of respectability? I don't want to answer that. I just want to put the question out. I don't want to answer it. To go back. So, back here. Um, Flem brings out this $20 bill thing and Ratliff thinks now it's the president he wants it and Ratliff is saying no and he takes off for lunch and then there's that passage where he said he didn't get it he, he just missed it completely now we get the, um, the unmasking of Montgomery um, Gavin says Flem's not going to show up Ratliff says yes he will Gavin is wrong. He's a, as a lawyer, he's an educated man. He's wrong again and again and again and again. And here he's wrong again. Ratliff tells him Flem's going to show up, and, and Gavin has not seen things, and sure enough, Flem shows up. On page 175, Flem is there to try to do everything he can to put Montgomery Ward in jail. Why? Um, he got rid of Mink. Say it. He has a negative impact on his respectability. Yep, yep. Because he casts a bad light on him. Now think about how, how in some ways that's a reflection of what goes on in the respectable world because the respectable world wants to cover up things so that it doesn't get a bad name for itself. That's what hid Montgomery Snopes. What we're seeing is, a, is an image, the modern term for it would be enabling. Also um, institutional sin as opposed to just individual sin. Yeah, it's true. It's a good way of putting it, too. I have a question, and it was earlier, so you've gone on. Can I ask it or not? I mean, this is about just what you said. But I'm worried about the enabling from Gavin because the beginning of Chapter 10, I don't remember which, my pages are sometimes off, 162 or so. Uncle Gavin said that even without Grover Cleveland, Montgomery Ward was going to be caught sooner or later, since there simply wasn't any place in Jefferson, Mississippi culture, for a vocation or hobby or interest in the one like Montgomery Ward. 
Explain the enabling, just to be clear out here. All he's saying is, oh, it couldn't happen here. Mm -hmm. Baloney, it's happened with everybody practically in the town except Gavin. So yeah. who's, who's being blind? Oh, Gavin. I mean, I, I, it's, yeah. it's, 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 and it's, I mean, he's in his head all the time, but he's right. not very, he doesn't very good head then. Oh, I, I think he's got an outstanding, <laughs> well, but there's lots he doesn't see, but yes, he's right. Naive. The, yes. The naivete that we can yes. have. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. And the way he's, he's an enabling situation. Yes, I couldn't agree more. That, that he's complicit in it everywhere. Even, man, put, I want to put this right. He's the one who's fighting most for the noblest things. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, yes, so in that sense, he's in some ways worse, even though it's harder to see because everything he does is trying to help out. So, yes, yes to all you're saying. Here, it, what we're seeing is how deep this is, even in the, even in the best of people. Let's put it as strongly. He's not a bad man. He doesn't stand next to Flem at all. Gavin is a really good man. But, but look, think about him in that way, and then look at, look at Ratliff. Because Ratliff sees how Gavin is wrong all the time. And here he goes, he didn't get it, he missed it, he missed it completely. He never does anything about it. Huh? He never does anything about it. Who? Ratliff. Wait, 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 wait. You know that he's already been taken when he, but here. Because they're trying, at least at this point, we know from the story that both of them are trying to figure out what this is. So we're in the same position. What, why did Flem withdraw his money from the bank? The two of them are puzzled about it. They're scratching their head. You know, every page is, we're, we're taken more and more deeply into this mystery, okay? Here, on page 175, just after Ratliff says to Gavin, Snopes is not coming. Who turns up? Snopes. The bot, and, and Snopes is doing everything he can to make sure Montgomery Ward gets sent to the penitentiary. And he learns from Gavin that they don't have enough evidence on him. The bottom of 171. I'm thinking of Jefferson, Mr. Snopes said. So am I, Uncle Gavin, of that Dan Grover Winbush and every other arrested adolescent between 14 and 58 in half of North Mississippi with 25 cents to pay for one look inside that album. I forgot about Grover Winbush, Mr. Snopes said. He won't, he won't only lose his job, but when he does, folks will want to know why, and this whole business will come out. What's the one thing Gavin's going to do? And Ratliff? Cover it up. Okay? This is this Christian world. Going over 176. Um, they repeat themselves again at the top of 177. I'm thinking of Jefferson. That, that, then it's just too bad for Jefferson, Uncle Gavin said. He will get Judge Long, and when Judge Long sees even one of those pictures, let alone a suitcase full of them, I'll almost feel sorry even for Montgomery Ward. Have you forgotten about Wilver Provine? This is the story of the guy who owned a still, if you remember, who was hiding it, and forced his wife to carry. When the case goes to court, the judge doesn't find him for the still. He finds him for having his wife carry the bucket. Why? because it's not mannered, it's not respectable. That a man should make his wife do that is a violation of this, what you might call this facade, this respectable code. Um, now, going over, Snopes, Lee, or Snopes is about ready to leave. 178, he says in the middle of the page, send that boy out, because he wants to make a deal that nobody can be witness to, certainly not the boy. And Gavin refuses, he's not gonna send Chick out. Um, and so Snopes leaves. Now, Ratliff comes back and asks what happened, top of 180. 
Um, and, and Gavin is explaining exactly what the conversation is. Why? Because Ratliff wants to know exactly what took place. Why? He's always listening. He's always attentive to details. Always. He listens. He watches. He, he puts things together. He's just very patient. 180. What was that conversation about just before he told you to send you out about the penitentiary, Uncle Gavin said. I just told you. It was about Wilbur Probine, I said. Chicks just corrected Gavin. Okay? Is everybody following? Mm -hmm. This young kid, I think he's around eight now, I can't remember. He, it was about Wilbur Provine, I said. Ratliff looked at me. Wilbur Provine? He's still, I said, that path in Judge Long. Oh, Ratliff said. Then what? That's all, Uncle Gavin said. He just said, send the boy up. That wasn't next, I said. The next was what Mr. Snope said about the fight. You all follow this. What's happening? What are we learning right in this moment, in this scene? What's, ha what's taking place? Gavin's missing it. Gavin's missing it. And Ratliff sees. Ratliff sees. Chick, Chick, Chick is beginning to learn. Mostly from who? <laughs> the mistakes his uncle's making and Ratliff's wisdom. And what are we watching? Exactly what Mike said and what the book is about. People are beginning to put things together. If, if Chick had not been there, would Ratliff have been able to put the pieces together? There would have been important pieces. To, how often are people patient enough to listen to put things together? What we're watching is, remember I told you, all of this is like a tutorialship. It's a mentoring. And we're seeing Chick is stepping into it. He's beginning to pay attention. He's learning. And remember, it all started, what's so funny, I, I didn't, we didn't start there, I wanted to start there today, but I got off. It all begins when Ratliff goes to the Mallison house, when Maggie's been having him for lunch, and he takes Chick for ice cream, and he says, how old are you? Just five. <laughs> well, you gotta start, <laughs> gotta start sometime. He's five years old, and he's starting to talk about lady pictures in France, because he's getting all this news from Gavin in France, and what Montgomery Snopes is up to then. And he, so he meets, daily for a while and then he starts meeting weekly because it's too expensive and he's starting to educate Chick, five years old to begin to get him ready to deal with evil okay um, so Ratliff and Gavin begin to put it all together again and going over to 185 um, now they're back to this question why did Ratliff pull out that money what's he doing or sorry doc Flam. Um, and the bottom one, for you ain't going to wait for Flam. He won't come back here. Now, what's you know what's going to happen now? As soon as Gavin says that, what's going to happen? Flam's going to come back. <laughs> Rath says you're going to wait for him. Gavin says no, he's not going to come back. He won't come back here. What happens? You know that in a few minutes, Flam is going to show up again. The bottom of the page, one eighty-four. The trouble with us, we don't never estimate Flam Snopes right. We keep, here it is, we keep misreading, God bless, you know how important that's been for me all, how, how hard it is for us to read well. They're not reading him well. The trouble with us, we don't never estimate Flem Snopes right. At first we made the mistake of not estimating him at all, because everybody just watched and gasped. Then we made the mistake of overestimating him. Now we're make, fixing to make the mistake of underestimating him again. When you just wait money, when you just want money, all you need to do is to satisfy yourself is count it and put it where can't nobody get it and forget about it. But this here new thing he's done found out it's 
nice to have is different. It's like keep, here it is, it's a giveaway. It's like keeping warm in winter or cool in summer or peace or being free or contentment. You can't just count on it and lock it up somewhere safe and forget about it until you, until you feel like looking at it again. You've got to work at it steady, never to forget about it. It's not going to be out in the open where folks can see it or there ain't no such thing. No such thing as what, Gavin said. This year, new discoveries just made, Ratliff said. Call it civic virtue. Why not? Were you going to call it something else? Go on, Uncle Gavin said. You were saying then it was gone, whatever it had been. And it goes on. He says a couple of more things about it. And then Snopes arrives. And then on page 186, Ratliff says, here's one of those long chapters. And still he missed it. And still he missed it. Even set, sit, and notice how, notice how, <laughs> Faulkner's amazing. Notice how Ratliff is beginning to get respectable. He's starting to use proper language. So he's, he himself is entering into that respectable, and you, if you've been reading well, you know that every once in a while he keeps correcting himself on these basic words. And still he missed it, even set, sitting right there in his own office and actively watching Flemrid's Jefferson of Montgomery Ward, and still I couldn't tell him. So my question is, what is it Flem's after? What does Ratliff see, and why can't he tell Gavin is that sort of giving things away here? The next six, check, six chapters are going to be telling because it's going to bring us to what I think is the most painful. I don't know if you've read ahead and I don't want to give it away. Something's going to happen that's going to just violate this whole world. It's just shocking to read. So we're headed towards something really, really dark. But is it clear that the very nature of respectability in this Christian town is, um, gives Montgomery Snopes coverage. He, he can hide himself, and it looks like that's what Flem wants. We know he's going to—he's the vice president now, and we—I think I don't know if he, he will become president eventually. When will he take out that twenty-dollar bill? When will he take it out, and for what? I just look, looking ahead. I don't want to answer it. Looking ahead. Why can't Why can't Gavin tell? Or, I mean, sorry. Why can't Ratliff tell him? And still, I can't tell him. Why not? Gavin won't believe him. <laughs> Why explain that? Some lessons you just have to learn for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin really wants to know badly. I mean, if there's a student in earnest, I mean, he's working as hard as he can to track on, this guy down. He's on the wrong track. He keeps thinking Flum's after money, but it's not the money. Or the vice presidency, or status, or um, because, like you just read on page one eighty-five, it's like keeping warm in winter and cool in the summer. You got to work at it steady and never and never to forget about it. You know, you have to keep trying to be better and true. And he's not that. Let's stop here. I want to. I want to ask some questions here that set us up for next well, week. Go ahead. I didn't catch the answer to the last one because I don't really know it. And that's why... You don't know what? I don't know why Ratliff couldn't, couldn't tell, tell Gavin. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I understand the whole 
you know, every time he tries to tell Gavin something, Gavin doesn't believe it, so he's not going to believe this one too. But at least he could have planted the seed so that maybe is the... He's trying again and again and again. You know, but, you know, you just come out and tell him, you know, yeah. that, you know, what, what he's really after. Mm -hmm. So that when you start trying to figure these things out, you know, use a different baseline to establish that. So I never really quite understood why Ratliff didn't just come out and tell him. And because he is a smart guy mm -hmm. in a, in a mm -hmm. book sense. Mm -hmm. So he could have laid it all out and maybe he could have start, started realizing it much sooner. So I never really got yeah. that part. Yeah. And I understand why, you know, Clint wants to get, you know, Montgomery Ward out of town. And he can't do it based on the respectability issue. So he gets it another way. You all know that he plants the whiskey. I mean, everybody's clear about that. But I guess there's there's a question. Maybe we find out in the mansion. I haven't I haven't started that one yet. But there's it's interesting that the the pornography, if you will, would have been a federal crime, and the whiskey is just a local county crime. So he's going to go to a different penitentiary in the end. And the question is, is that just circumstance or, or is it relevant because it just so happens that he winds up probably going where Mink is. Yes. Well, you've touched on, a, I mean, you've hit it in some way. I don't want to give it away, but yeah. Just the, in response to the more serious question I thought you had, Ratliff does say why. He actually is explicit, and I'll look, we'll look at that next week, but he does say why. He, he can't tell him, so he's really clear himself. I don't. I don't want to give because it's not in our chapters right now. And I want to, but it's there. Um, here's a couple of questions. For, let's see. What was I? Um, Why isn't he setting up Montgomery Ward uh, later for later business dealings? Say again, Don. Did he set Montgomery Ward up for business later? We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Does Flem ever do anything? Yeah. With. Huh? Not for somebody else. Yeah. No. With, without seeing how he can exploit some. By the way, I hope everybody takes seriously what I said. And I, this is a really uncomfortable, but I, you know, I've been saying it all along of every person when we did Iago, you know, which is if we don't learn to see ourselves in all the characters, then we're reading. I don't know how well we're reading. Um, if Flem is a principle of this culture that we live in and that it's part of what forms us as we grow up. How much is it present? Is it present in our own lives? Are we aware of it? There's a community beginning to form together and it, it, Faulkner makes it clear that you can't deal with this without drawing together. So s something about the way that we answer this thing has to involve other people. Um, leave phlegm alone with an individual, there's no contest. Flem will. But we're watching a community begin to come together to deal with evil. And in some sense, we can say it's a culture beginning to be aware of itself and the problems with respectability. The, the comfortable life that we all live and the enabling that's behind it, even if we're not aware of it. And the question is, if, if this is prophetic, is it helping us to see something that might make us uncomfortable? Um, next week, the, the crisis occurs in the next 
six, seven chapters. So what's the crisis? Here's my, my burning, troubling question. What does this crisis, I can't tell you, you but what does this crisis do for the way that we under, understand respectability? If Montgomery Ward can hide behind it and Flem can hide behind it, do we take respectability away? What is Faulkner saying? If, if bad people can begin to use it, if it's a, I thought Don's phrase was, you know, an institutional sin, if it, it, it's a cultural thing. It, it becomes embedded in a culture. Do we do away with it? I don't want to answer, I'm just, I'm asking questions. What, what happens if you take it away? I mean, where are we? And, and, the, and, the, and the, one of the more fundamental questions for me, you already know, if at the root of respectability is this relationship between men and women, and woman is at the center of it because she's the, she's the pledge of a future, then the manners are important for men to learn to restrain themselves. Because if they don't, you've got a sexual object. Take that away. Take the respectability away. What happens to the sexual relationship? It can be Japan, it can be China, it can be Russia, it can be anywhere. It's, it's, it's particularly important in the West. Why? Because the West is a Christian culture. We've got certain notions about the, what is a real relationship between a man and a woman as set out by Christ. What happens if you take it away? Or what happens when that culture begins to decay? What happens between men and women? So Faulkner is going right to the heart of these things. In some ways, the way Melville didn't in, remember, Melville is really about Ahab and Ishmael. The Smoke Trilogy is fundamentally about a town, a, a community, and what happens to a people to try to deal with an evil that relates directly to the sexual relationships between a man and a woman. I hope that was clear. So you know where we, what does the I can't go, what, what, what does the crisis tell us about respectability? What light does it throw? Is the answer to, to do away with it? Because the evil can hide behind it? What is Faulkner showing us? Because these are so basic to everything important in our lives. Is that okay, those questions? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, is, I mean, is, can, it, it, I, I hope everybody sees why. I mean, these go to the the most basic because it goes to the sexual the the t the ties between a man and a woman, everything that encourages the good things and everything that encourages the wrong things, and and if you look at. Gavin, and it's really, he tries to do everything he can that's good, 